Welcome to The Hammer and Quill, a Bonhoeffer House podcast exploring the good, true, and beautiful in the lives and vocations of interesting people. This is episode 15, an interview with Dr. Matthew Bates. Matt, welcome from Northern California, joining us via Zoom. Hey, Jesse, Michael, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's, it's great to be in Northern California. And you're on vacation back home where you grew up, is that right? That's right, yeah. So uh, escaping the humidity of Illinois uh, and uh, getting back to my roots here, uh, where it's the land of large pine trees, uh, Douglas fir, waterfalls, beautiful hiking trails. Kind of, uh, uh, if any of you uh, or any of you listeners are familiar with uh, the area between Mount Shasta and Mount Lassen in Northern California, uh, it's not the beach, dude. It's quite different. (laughs) I'm sure we have have a lot of listeners out there in uh, Northern California. Uh, (laughs) But that's exactly how I pictured. When you said Northern California, I figured there'd be giant trees, waterfalls, mountains. Walking trails. Walking trails. Yeah. No beach. A, a little, so it sounds a little bit more Pacific Northwest. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It's in the Cascade Mountains. So. Mm. Well, that sounds beautiful. I would, I have not been to the Pacific Northwest and I would love to go. You've never been? No. Me neither. I've I, been I, I, said, I said that as if like, you've never been. I mean, we've all been, <laughs> yeah, you, but I've also <laughs> never been. Uh, yes. I've been to 46 out of the 48 continental states. But no, no Oregon, no. Oh, the one north of that, guys. Washington. Yeah, we need to go on road the trip one out north, there. The one north <laughs> of that, <laughs> whatever's north of Portland, uh, Washington. That's right. Hey, so thank you for joining us via Zoom. This is, you know, uh, this is the spring. This is 2020 is the year of Zoom, and we're as much as I get tired of it, we're thankful for it. We're thankful for it for times like now where we can join with Dr. Bates. And uh, is it okay if we call you Matt on here? Yeah, yeah putting you on the spot. Great. Okay, mm-hmm. Matt. Matt, yeah, so so thankful for you joining us, and and really, we're interested to dive right in here. So Matt's a brand new friend of ours, but someone who we've been reading and, and engaging with in our own kind of circle of of uh, Bonhoeffer House folks, and so 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 thankful that you could join us. So just so you know what this podcast is about, our listeners know, but just a reminder: we're really all about the good, true, and beautiful. Uh, really trying to seek it out as we look at the world and look specifically in the vocations and the callings of people that are friends of ours. Uh, and, and so we want to look, really what we're trying to do is stop and look at the lives of people with a Philippians 4.8 kind of lens, so that we're looking through this lens of finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true and honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. You know, we started the hammer and quill with the conviction that there's a lot coming at us that's really more malformative than formative, and so, so we wanted to have, uh, we wanted to stop and look at the lives and vocations of people serving God in a variety of ways, to try to be uh, kind of curious about what's good and what's true and what's beautiful here, and what can we learn about how we can serve God uh, by 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 diving in and 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 asking some interesting people questions about their lives. And so we wanted to have Matt here on the gospel, on, on the hammer and quill <laughs> because gospel allegiance, which is your newest, newest work, which is subtitled what faith in Jesus misses for salvation in Christ provocative. Mm-hmm. It's been uh, an incredibly challenging uh, read for, for me and for a, a few of us here in the Bonhoeffer house and has given some form 
to some of the questions that we've been asking about regarding the gospel. In particular, yeah. uh, at what is the what is how does justice fit into gospel? Right. So a few years ago, um, uh, I found myself often having. Uh, almost uh, heated debates with friends about maybe I was including too much in the gospel, right? There's this kind of uh, uh, hedging around it, uh, protecting it from importing things like um, horizontal justice and reconciliation, those sorts of things. And so, right. so this, this book came along and uh, gave some form to some of the questions, helped, helped uh, look, look at the scriptures uh, really afresh. And so now, but in the, in the meantime, not surprisingly, your work has been a bit controversial. In I, some circles. In some <laughs> circles. <laughs> uh, you've met a bit we're of a, opposition. Yeah, we're in, a, we're in a very tribalistic environment, right? Um, mm. There are some tribes that are going to, you know, um, jump down your throat, uh, you know, uh, for certain kinds of views, others that are going to affirm and, you know, um, and vice versa if, if the situation's, you know, um, switched. So... Yeah, uh, there's been some controversy, but in some circles, none at all. So that that totally makes sense. It, yes, it does. <laughs> that totally makes sense. So we thought it'd be would it'd be formative, uh, interesting to have a conversation with you about your work, and, and maybe give our listeners an opportunity to engage with your argument of of your work directly, uh, and maybe buy some more books. So, uh, as a matter of fact, we are going to be giving away two copies. Thanks again to to um, Baker Academic for. Uh, supplying some books for us to give away, and so um, so we'll be doing that at the end of the at the end of the show. But first, Matt, here's how we start all of our uh, all of our episodes out is asking you the question. Uh, please introduce yourself specifically. Answer this: What would you What would be on the back of your baseball card? Back of my baseball card. Now um, I think we're in the same era. So did you grow up collecting baseball yeah. cards? Um, I, I had a few, okay. um, I was not an avid baseball card collector, but I was, I am and was an avid baseball fan. Ooh. Um, so, uh, and I did play baseball up through high school. And so on the back of my card, it's going to say that I'm six foot and, and one eighty, mm. uh, and, uh, I'm going to have a home run total of one. Okay. Probably. <laughs> okay. Um, because I'm inside the park or hitter. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, not inside the park. I'm too slow. Um, <laughs> Just pushed one over the fence. So, yeah, I'm, there's going to be some doubles on there. I was a, I was a pretty good line drive hitter, truthfully, mm. but I didn't hit for a lot of power. I, you know, um, you know, theologians aren't probably known for being extraordinarily buff, um, and I probably am in that category mm. of more like dad bod. Mm. You know, um, but whenever we play wiffle ball at home. Um, and we do, uh, I'm usually the first choice, right? I'm yeah. my top draft pick. Well, so yeah, that should uh, be definitely be on the back of the baseball card. <laughs> yeah. Top pick yeah. and backyard so, wiffle ball. But I'm, I'm going to say uh, on the back of my car is a 389 batting average. I mean, that's really mm. like just, just ridiculously good. I mean, I'm, I'm really going to be, <laughs> you know, I'm pressing up with, with the greatest of all time there. Yeah. Excellent. That That's the most comprehensive yeah, actual, Tony Gwynn, you know, yeah. Tony Gwynn, get out of the way. That's right. Pete Rose, farewell. Jesse right. frequently likes to say, I may not be strong, but at least I'm slow. <laughs> That's not supposed to be public. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so so uh, that's tremendous. You you gave us like a real stat sheet. That's probably the, the most true to the oh. card answer that we've, yeah. we've ever gotten. Yeah, now, now give us a little bit more of a biographical background. Tell us about uh, who you are. Well, um, 
I grew up in Northern California, as I just sort of mentioned in the sticks, my dad's a forester. So I'm really closely connected to um, just the land and um, a sense of place, uh, which is really, I think, lost in our culture. I love that. Um, so it's, it's a great joy to come back home. And, and, this, and when I get the chance to do that in the summers, not every summer, but often we do we get a lengthier visit because of um, my academic schedule. And oftentimes I'll try to write while I'm away, although this year not so much. Um, but yeah, anyway, uh, so I, I don't know that there's too much to report from my childhood other than, um, you know, I loved to read, loved science, loved um, the outdoors, loved wiffle ball. And uh, <laughs> in terms of my journey, probably the most significant kind of spiritually formative things were that my mother um, was quite pious and helped introduce me to the faith. And it was a very private sort of faith. Um, we didn't go to church, um, but she taught me scripture verses. And um, we talked a lot about following Jesus and um, asking Jesus into our hearts and those kinds of things. So some of my earliest memories are formed by that. And that's beautiful. Uh, and then in junior high, um, a family friend was involved in a mill accident quite tragically. And we ended up getting um, through that and through his witness. Actually, God really used him as he felt that like God had spared his life. Uh, to, uh, to witness to our family, we got involved in a church. It was a very fundamentalist, King James only kind of, um, you know, you, you probably are aware of those kinds of churches. And um, so through that experience, then I got baptized and started following and, uh, and learning in a more um, systematic way, I suppose. But um, there were some malformed things too, but also some really beautiful things through that. Mm, mm. Yeah, we have, we have some KJV only churches around here. Mm -hmm. I'm sure. Yeah, it's good enough for St. Paul. That's absolutely right. <laughs> good, and now yeah. uh, uh, married kids. Yeah, and so, yeah, continuing that journey then, um, went to, you know, obviously college and um, had determined I was going to do a degree in physics as I, I decided that was the best way to discover what was true and beautiful and good. Mm -hmm. uh, probably not the right path for discovering such things. Uh, but but still, um, there is a lot of um, good and true and beautiful in science. And I think I recognized that and was drawn to it. But truthfully, I was drawn to its epistemic prestige, probably, and to uh, the sense that this is the best way to learn true things about the world and the prestige around that in our culture. You know, and I was a sharp young man. So I, I thought, like, I'd like to do something hard, too. I like the challenge of physics. So I took a degree, an undergraduate degree in physics, and thought I would probably go on and do an engineering career. And in fact, I was accepted into PhD programs in biomedical engineering. Uh, but my senior year, for a variety of reasons, um, I began to feel that God was calling me down a different path. So um, eventually, uh, just uh, you can circle back and ask more questions about that if, as you wish. Yeah. But I um, yeah, went to ended up going to Regent College um, in Vancouver, B.C., studying with Gordon Fee and Rick Watts and some, some folks like that. And uh, uh, J.I. Packer was still there. Um, uh, and then um, from there, then uh, PhD work at Notre Dame with some engineering work sandwiched in there. I did four years as an electrical engineer. Wow. That's, that is it, it, quite the story. Yeah. That's, I didn't have that same experience coming up in college where I was like, I'm going to take a challenging major. <laughs> I'm going to do something hard. <laughs> Nor did I. <laughs> But we, but when we, but, but we see it and we, re when we recognize it, yeah. But it's not like game recognizes game. It's like <laughs> yeah. the fan recognizes exactly. Game. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. You know, Jim, Jim Packer was still there teaching. I've heard a ran. He, yeah, go ahead. Oh yeah, he was. Although he, um, yeah, he was still teaching occasional course, um, but he um, 
truthfully had a reputation of being a somewhat boring lecturer. Uh, so I, I took my systematics uh, from Paul Helm, partly because it fit into my um, to my my schedule better. And he was, I think, he was visit, a visiting professor at that mm. point. Huh. Uh, I have a story about Jim Packer, a friend of mine, uh, actually a friend of the house. Reese Bizant told a story about uh, uh, at a con- being at a conference with with Jim Packer, and he saw him winning. He's got it. He was probably like 78, 80 years old at the time, uh, and he was trying to catch up to him. He was walking, and and Packer was ahead of him, and they were just walking in the same direction, and he couldn't catch him. <laughs> and he's like, he's a, he's just a really fast walker, and I just for some reason that's always stuck with me. Jim Packer, fast walker, also a theologian. <laughs> yeah, your primary. I don't know. How, I don't actually know how long ago that was. Frankly, it might not even be real, but it is how I think of him. Yeah, Packer might have been trying to get away from him. It's possible. You know what? I didn't consider that, but that could be it. Oh, here comes yeah, Reese. Reese might have been isolated. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's actually now the way I think of the story. He's trying to get, he tells the story differently. Right. Reese, Reese was chasing me and, uh, I got away from him though. Yeah. Well, well, so glad to have you on and specifically interesting to hear your vocational journey before we get into gospel allegiance and get into, into really the thesis of your work in these past few years. We love, I'd love to dial in a little bit on vocation. We ask the same question of all our guests, which is, uh, because we're, we're really all about exploring how God has honored in the variety of vocations or callings uh, that he has for his people. Uh, so we want to know a little bit more about maybe how you discern God's call in your life. Uh, when did you know, you know, you talk a little bit more about that journey from physics major to right. theology professor and how you kind of discern God's will in that. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And obviously, these things are always multifaceted as we think about how we discerned. Um, for me, one of the things that was a helpful discerning process was that I was 22 years old and making probably, certainly in terms of real, real, real-time non-inflated money, more money than I make now, um, as, uh, mm. you know, I was an electrical engineer and, you know, doing quite well. And, you know, I was single too. So I had like, you know, just money coming out of my ears. Um, and I just, all I could think about is like, when do I get to retire? This is horrible. You know, I, I did not, <laughs> I did not enjoy the work mm. at all. And I think that, you know, on the one hand, I think that some of that, though, as I as I as I reflect further, was due to my own theological deficiencies. Like, so some part of my discernment process and part of my my movement out of engineering was due to my own deficient theological lenses that I applied to vocation. Uh, as I didn't listen to podcasts like this, you know, I I, I, I they weren't even available back then, but you know, I. I um, mm. I didn't really have the resources to help me discern vocation. Um, so I think for me, I, I saw engineering as like a good service, but like, how is this really helping Jesus? Right. And I, I just lived for conversations around the coffee pot with colleagues that might move in a more theological or philosophical direction. And right. those were few and far between. I spent a lot of time working on spreadsheets and um, it just was not life giving to me. So some of it was just a sense that my own, that, it, that my work wasn't life-giving um, to, to me personally. And I realized it was doing a, a, a larger good, but I couldn't see how it fit into God's purposes. And I think I, I would do better now, I hope, if I was in engineering, seeing that, no, oh, this is valuable. Like mm. something, something that is true and good and beautiful from this work survives. Mm. Um, mm. I don't know exactly how that all happens, but yeah. I think it does. Good. And did you have, uh, did you have, input from outside where there are people saying, Hey, you'd be a good, you'd be a good theologian. 
you know, you should consider um, this. Not really. And, uh, you know, I went to seminary, not with the intention even um, necessarily of being a pastor or an academic. I, I, I thought I would probably actually go back into engineering, at least possibly. I thought I might go into the ministry. I didn't know. I just felt like this was the next step for me was um, to explore these things. And it was also I was needing, I think, to um, have some more reflective space um, intellectually and spiritually to process my own life journey as I had kind of come out of a a fundamentalist sort of um, upbringing that um, had a lot of good in it, but I could see also some real intellectual problems that I needed to work through mm. and figure out what I believed. And I needed some time to do that. And I, I so I did get outside input and in, in asking, you know, what seminary should I attend? Yeah. You know, from people I trusted, you know, spoke to some, you know, former professor and some other people in my life. And, and they all said regent. Um, and that, that seemed like it was a confirmation. And that for me, you know, I was in the Pacific Northwest. I was in Spokane. That was fairly regional too. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, it's in Vancouver, British Columbia. So do you think more people go to re so it's interesting hearing this and this I'm just speculating. Do you think more people go to Regent um, uncertain of where they'll be when they graduate? So and, and here's my question. Here's the reason I ask that is I, I know a few people that have been have gone to Regent also went just going. I'm not sure what I want to be a pastor. I'm not sure I want to be an academic. I just want to study more. I want to learn more about the Lord and let the Lord lead me. Whereas my experience in uh, a, a, a big great, wonderful Southern Baptist seminary was, <laughs> well, brother, I'm going to be a pastor. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I, you know, I didn't come across too many that are there just because they were say, um, theologically or intellectually curious, right. Without a, without a, you know, end goal. Is that, am I, am I making that up? Do you, did you find that no, region? Regent, region is much, it was very much like that, at least in my era. I suspect that still is true today. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, and I think there's a, a, there was a lot of people on an academic track at, at region as well. I mean, I think they did a, um, one time they did a, like a, an offering of like just a lecture for people who are interested in going on to PhD work and like half the student body showed yeah. up, you know what I mean? And, mm. and so there was definitely a lot of people who sought to go on from there. But, um, but I think that there was some who came in, I, I had friends who were definitely like, I'm on the pastor track and this is yeah. what I'm going to do. And, um, yeah, but a, a lot of people I think who, who undertook it as a process of discernment. Hmm. So at what point in your studies did you become more convinced? I think, I think this is for me, I think I want to go into theology, teaching, uh, professorship. Yeah. Um, well, I hope this doesn't come off the wrong way as, as if sort of like arrogant or something like that, but uh, like to a degree, I had no idea if I would be good at it. Right. I mean, mm, I had right. done physics as an undergrad. Um, and so I think part of the discernment process was that like when I started taking my, you know, advanced exegetical courses, I was really, you know, my professors identified me as a talented, you know, student at doing yeah. those kinds of things or that reasoning process. And I had taught myself Greek before going to seminary. So I kind of came in with a full head of steam. And, uh, and so I think that I, I, you know, I was, I, I think I excelled. And so I think as part of that process, you begin to think like, well, maybe should I go on and do more work? Like, yeah. I love this. Yeah. Um, so, so for me, I think that was, um, also part of the, the process for me. It was just like, you know, realizing like I seem to be gifted in this way and at least in some degree. So why not continue to get further training as perhaps I can serve the church well in this way. Mm. That's good. I think, I think external external affirmation and demonstrated skill is often in my, I've been working with college students for 20 years and it's often lacking. Yeah. Right. There's, there's sometimes it's like, wait, you think you'd be good at that because you're, 
what makes you think you'd be good at that? You're not good at that. And then other times it's like, <laughs> well, do you know, do you even know that you're really good at this thing here? Yeah. Which by the way, I didn't have any professors tell me that I, they thought I'd be a good theologian. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's almost like an unspoken uh, assumption that it's less spiritual to actually have someone say you're good at this or recognize yeah. you're good at this uh, or vice versa. Um, that, and sometimes it's even lauded that if, if you aren't good at something, but you have this, you know, faith that, well, if I just step into this, then God's going to do gonna, something. Yeah. <laughs> but sometimes yeah. you're just, sometimes you God, what's God's going to do is let you fail. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 Also, I was reminded in our conversation with Dr. McDermott, didn't he mention that he, yeah. He took Greek classes to get like easy courses. Yeah. So as you were talking, yeah, we had Dr. Jerry McDermott, Gerald McDermott on a few weeks ago. And, um, he, when he, whenever he needed an easy class undergraduate, wasn't even graduate. He yeah. took, he took a Greek class. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, again, wow. was again, something that we did not share. So as you were, yeah. as you were sharing about how you taught yourself Greek, we, we, we were like, we hey, do- <laughs> not even our seminary professors could teach us Greek. <laughs> <laughs> We do not relate. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. So let's dive in here. Your, your work has been a bit controversial, uh, or at least in some circles, some tribes. And so, uh, but before we get into any kind of controversy, uh, can you describe maybe your thesis? Take some time to talk about what go- gospel allegiance is and how you kind of source that in the scriptures. Yeah, so in, in simplest terms, the thesis of the book would be that um, the climax of the gospel is that Jesus is the Christ or the King, and that this has been missed as the climax of the gospel in a lot of um, popular level and biblical scholarship. Um, that instead, the climax of the gospel, if there has been a climax, is, has been usually the cross or has uh, been spoken of in those ways, and without denying the centrality of the cross, its its climactic force in terms of bringing atonement or things like that. Um, at the same time, we, we need to realize that the gospel narrative goes beyond that. And when the apostles go out and they proclaim Jesus, they proclaim him as the Christ, the, the ruling king. So that would be one half of the thesis: would be to argue that the climax of the gospel is that Jesus has become the the, the ruling king. Um, the second half of it um, is marrying that to um, the uh, a study of the word pistis in Greek. And um, the word pistis, I argue, means loyalty or allegiance or faithfulness much more frequently than um, our English translations would lead us to believe. Mm. So um, English translations, of course, do sometimes translate pistis as faithfulness or uh, in that kind of direction. But looking more specifically at some some Bible passages and um, also at um, literature outside the Bible um, from that time period that features pistis, arguing that it can mean loyalty or allegiance. So the bringing those two together then um, helps us to see, I believe, the correct um, paradigm for for biblical um, soteriology or salvation theory, um, which is that um, what it means to be saved is that we have to identify that Jesus has become the king as the climax of the gospel, including his incarnation, his his atoning death for our sins, his resurrection on the third day, all this according to the scriptures. Uh, but then we're going beyond that, right? Seeing that he has become the king, and then as the king, he's poured out the spirit and will come again. But that really the the confession of, of allegiance or pistis or faith in him, right, is what is saving 
and that's specifically aimed at him as the king who summarizes the gospel. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in. Yeah. So I I love to uh, pick your brain a little bit here. So beginning with your the first part of the thesis, um, uh, the that Jesus is the um, the reigning king as the Messiah. The, the, the uh, t- talk a little bit about how you get from from Christus to Messiah to King, or or you know in that you know when I when I maybe uh, naturally think about Christ Messiah um, King isn't maybe the very first thing that comes to mind. And that, that could just be my own, you know, my own, uh, circle, my own tribe there. Uh, but I'm thinking the smeared on one, the anointed one, which it, it is kingly, uh, but help just help make that more explicit for, at least for me, maybe any of you listeners out there that are wondering. Yeah. Well, obviously in ancient Israel, um, yeah, you were, uh, the Kings were anointed with oil, right. And smeared. And so David is called in the Septuagint, the old Greek old Testament, you know, a Christos, a king, mm-hmm. uh, a Christ, a King. And, and this is not necessarily, um, you know, something that's oriented towards his future, but towards his present moment as being the anointed one on behalf of the Lord. So, um, you know, obviously as that uh, hope gets mobilized in the prophetic literature for the future, there's hope for a, a king that will come in, in the line of David. Um, and yeah, so the, the language specifically of Basilus, uh, of, of king, kingdom language, Basileia language, um, is uh, connected with um, Christos language or Mashiach language, to use the Hebrew term. Uh, and we see this in places in the, in the New Testament, you know, like in Acts, you know, where the apostles are going out, um, they might say that, you know, that they're proclaiming there is a new king, um, as that's the way they're mobilizing that Jewish category for their Greco-Roman audiences. So, um, yeah, so obviously the term Christ means something along the lines of the the Jewish, the distinctly Jewish king who would nevertheless have a universal reign. Right, as the Gentiles would flock to Jerusalem, to Zion, to come under his, his wise dominion. Mm. Um, so we, we see the idea of the pilgrimage of the nations and the submission of the nations to um, this future king as being an important horizon of understanding. So as you know, that category is um, you know, one that's distinctly Jewish, as that's translated into more Greco-Roman terms, like the, the idea of a Caesar or a king would mm-hmm. be connected to. That's excellent. How, how important um, in in uh, gospel allegiance, and maybe it's maybe it's not covered at all. I can't remember, but but Romans one. So, and the reason I asked, let me get a l- little background. Um, very covered, very covered. There it is. I, yeah. <laughs> okay. Covered. Yeah. So so my part of my experience with reading gospel allegiance was it was it was really cohering with a sermon series we were doing. We we were starting on Romans, and I was studying Romans one. Uh, really, one through fifteen. I, I I don't believe I was preaching the first one. I think I was preaching the second one in the series. But in order to preach the second sermon in our series, I was really diving into those first six verses. And and for me, as I was reading it, I was thinking, man, he is talking about the Evangelion, the gospel of God, which he pro- and then, and but then there's all of this. Um, Paul is a slave of Christ Jesus of of the Messiah Jesus. Now this relationship. You know, is he, Paul saying something about who he is in relation to the promised one? And then you've got this thing. Well, here's what the gospel of God is, and then and then he's talking about uh, the promise through the prophets, specifically mentioned the descending from David according to the flesh, declaring to be the Son of God. Uh, that th- there's this kind of um, even in the end that to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all of the nations. Mm-hmm. 
that which then introduces this whole Jew, Jew Gentile in relationship under and in Christ. So I'm reading that, picking up Gospel Legions and going, ah, this is now now this is connecting to me. Uh, what what really Paul means, at least in Romans one, when he's talking about both faith, pistis, uh, there in verse five, and uh, gospel in verse one. So can you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah. So and uh, you're right, and I think this is one of the you know, probably three or four most explicit articulations of the gospel that we get in the Bible. And it, it oftentimes gets glossed over as people just hasten onward to Romans 1, 16 through 17, um, as uh, those are important verses too. Uh, but um, those are maybe the thesis statement in Romans, at least arguably. So some people miss that um, Paul's actually describing the gospel. But yeah, he says in verse one that Paul has been set apart um, as an apostle, uh, set apart for the gospel of God. Right. And so um, here we're, we're talking about the euangelion of God. Right. And he identifies it as promised and advanced in Greek. Um, we have the language of, of 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 kind of pre-promised there would be, I guess, the, um, the best way to speak about it. Um, and then he talks about it. Um, this gospel concerns his son. So it identifies um, a father son dimension to the gospel. Like we don't want to miss this. It isn't all just a, um, about um yeah, some, sometimes um, we might see some, especially in more scholarly circles, the sun language um, obviously can get connected to kingly language exclusively rather than ontologically to a, a Trinitarian understanding. And I think that that's problematic, partly because we see actually that language um, who is descended from David according to the flesh might be one translation. Um, but actually in Greek, it's a little bit more precise. Um, it says, peri to huiu tu concerning his son, Tuganomenu experimentos Dawid. Then that is actually the Tuganomenu um, is from the Greek word genomai, which means to come into being or to be, to become. Um, and so it says that the son uh, came into being or, or became by means of the seed of David, according to his flesh. So it says the son didn't come into existence in every way, um, but just came into existence in as far as his flesh was concerned, mm. right? Um, and so this is actually a pretty precise statement of what we would call the incarnation. This is why we would see the incarnation as part of the gospel, too. Mm. It's not just about Jesus' cross. It's about uh, the, the incarnation, right? As, the, as he takes on human flesh, right? Uh, Paul seems to be f- focusing on that. And then it says um, that he was appointed or installed, and this is important, son of God in power. And um, I think that we can make some good arguments from Greek grammar and from syntax here uh, to say that this, this, isn't, this means that he was appointed son of God in power, and that's, that's sort of like a quasi-title, um, that he is, it's a, it's a way of speaking about how he's been seated at the right hand of God. Mm. So he was installed as son of God in power uh, in accordance with the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from uh, among the dead ones or among the corpses or however you want to put that. So Jesus was really dead. He was wherever all the dead people go. He was in the abode of the dead, right? But um, he was, by means of the resurrection, um, he was um, seated then at this new position, right, at the right hand of God. So that would unpack it a little bit. But then, of course, we move beyond that to the statements of the purpose of the gospel that connected to the obedience of pistis among all the nations. That's excellent. So let's let's actually, let's go there next. So so, uh, what is the word allegiance uh, provide for us that faith doesn't. So when I read obedience of faith, um, wh- why would you translate that allegiance, and and how is that? How does that help us? You know, understand what uh, what what the scriptures mean at least some of the time. Which I appreciated about the book that uh, you're not making an either or uh, argument. You're making a 
um, uh, maybe a, a most of the time argument, which I think is helpful. Yeah. But yeah, so so how does allegiance help us there? Yeah, um, well, allegiance helps us because I think whenever we see that um, any word, right, um, is going to its meaning is partly controlled by its frame of reference, or you know, what we might call a context, or however we want to speak about it. Words have large um, semantic fields or like um, ways in which they can be actualized in different kinds of contexts, right? So we have to identify the appropriate context, right? Um, because if we use the word, um, you know, um, pool, like on the one hand, it might be a swimming pool and the other times it might be like a pool table, right? I mean, there's a lot like the context is if, if I'm talking about billiards, right? Well, the context is going to inform. Similarly, like if we're talking about a king, right, a Christos, um, we might want to think that the language that surrounds that is going to connect intimately to, um, to royal motifs. So whenever we see um, the word pistis in relationship to kingly sort of discourse, um, the more natural field of um, pistis that's actualized there would be ideas of allegiance or loyalty. So um, we see that um, in, um, in Romans then um, 1.5, right, where it says, um, through whom, meaning the Lord Jesus, um, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of Pistis for the sake of his name among all the, all the nations. So it makes a big difference, right, when we're talking about the gospel, whether we're going to call people to, like, faith in um, Jesus's death on the cross. Like, is that the center of action, right, when we're speaking about what our faith is directed toward? Or are we called more toward f uh, uh, a fidelity to the king? Right to to our to an obedience of pistis to for are all the nations instead called to bow down to this king in some way to give their loyalty or their allegiance to him? It's a very different kind of idea that should inform our evangelism and our preaching and our vision for what the gospel is trying to do in the world. Can you can you share a little bit about some of those implications that you see? You you talk in gospel allegiance a decent amount about the the kind of salvation culture that's created when we, when we center faith on the cross or center faith on, on our just our justification. Um, and so I'm curious to hear you share a little bit about um, what do you see as those implications in our preaching, in our evangelism, in, in our, you know, embodied action. Uh, yeah. When we, when we get it, you know, right. When we, uh, when we think sure. of it more in terms of allegiance. Yeah, well, I'll be generalizing a little bit, but one way in which we would see, I think, a real importance there is, is as you mentioned, the embodied dimension of it, right? That pistis is not something I do just with my mind, but that is, it's an, it's an externalized posture of loyalty. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have an interiority. It doesn't mean that it doesn't involve trusting Jesus as the Savior and the Lord and all of that. But it means that's not really what the focus of attention was. It was on like your external actions. Like, were you loyal to somebody or not in, in how you behaved? So when we understand pistis there more in the direction of loyalty, um, one of the implications would be that it, it, it gives us a real political, social political vision for the gospel itself, right? That it, it undercuts the tendency in some quarters. And we would see this, for instance, with John MacArthur, um, you know, who was the leading signatory on that um, declaration of the gospel or whatever it was several years back. I can't think of the, the title. Uh, of statement, the statement, on, the top of my head. statement on social justice. That's right. Yeah. Statement on social justice and the gospel is at the title. Yeah. yeah, something like that. But but yeah, as, as part of that, like with MacArthur as the leading signatory, right, um, there was a... a an explicit denial, right? That social justice is actually part of the gospel. Um, and 
as uh, at least, you know, and I hear I'm speaking off the cuff as, as I remember reading it and it's been a while. Right. Um, and one of the implications then of seeing gospel allegiance as, um, as uh, the correct paradigm would be to see that like, no, Jesus is the King and he demands the fidelity of his citizens. Yeah. Right. And that, this is this this involves a real politic and it involves an actualization of justice right? that we do need to be doing social justice. So we wouldn't want to say on the one hand that social just like our social justice actions are part of the gospel. That's not true. They're not right, um, because the gospel is about what Jesus has done. It's about his becoming king. But whenever we're talking about like, what is it? What is salvation involved? What does it mean to respond to the king? It's not just trusting him as the savior. It's also. I, I being loyal to him as the king. So um, you can see why this uh, probably immediately causes nervousness as you get into the controversy uh, <laughs> right. issues, right? As then people are like, well, how loyal do you need to be? Like, isn't this just works? Um, how do we, how right, do we resolve right. all these tensions? And the book, the purpose of the book is to do that, right? right? right. <laughs> as it works through each of those things and shows when we really understand what grace actually is in the new Testament, we really understand what works are um, that these, these, these are not insurmountable problems. Like they fit within the gospel allegiance model. So would you say one of the, one of the main thing that gospel allegiance is attempting to do is, is kind of change the way we think about ourselves as the church and, and change the way we think about uh, our, our response to God as, as King or our response to the gospel. Yeah, I mean, I would say that the greatest hope I have for the book would be that it's going to cause a you know a paradigm shift in how the church thinks about what the gospel is and what it means to respond to the gospel. That it will, it, like that if if I could speak to that, I would say that like my my greatest hope might be that the church realizes now that like what it means to be a Christian is to confess that Jesus is the Christ. This is what actually creates the church. The church is created by the confession that Jesus is the Lord or Jesus is the Christ. And this is what we find with Peter, right? For instance, whenever um, Jesus speaks his, his words to Peter and says, you know, you're Peter on this rock will build my church and so on and so forth. Well, it's predicated on the fact that, G that Peter has just said, you know, you know, um, in response to Jesus' questions, who do people say that I am? Like right. he said, you are the Christ, right? right? And it's that confession um, that he is the Christ and as Matthew adds, the son of the living God. Right, that that actually constitutes and creates the church, and that's why Jesus immediately responds and says that he he seems to identify this action of confession as being that which constitutes the church. Um, and I think that we would say that it's as we confess Jesus is the Christ that the Spirit is given, and that the church, you know, is created as an invisible body. Mm -hmm. So I I would see it as um as something that is core we need to recover, but that we need to recognize that this is something that goes beyond just a mental action. Right, that this is something that is not just about believing the right facts. It's not just about trusting the right thing. It's actually about a posture of fidelity, not perfect fidelity, uh, not perfect allegiance, but of an orientation of allegiance toward the king. Yeah, so, so in, in fact, I think to me that, that is why allegiance works so well uh, to help bring clarity to, uh, to the really a question that we've wrestled with, um, at least here in the Bonhoeffer House for years and years. You know, we've thought a lot about how uh, faith is not merely mental assent. Um, yeah. You know, really what we're not, what we're not aiming for is people to just change their minds about, you know, I don't know who, who, where, where their salvation lies or something like that. Right. Um, you know, we, we've, we've studied um, works like Dallas Willard's um, spirit of the disciplines or which in Willard has, has helped us with our, 
thinking here where, what does he say? Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Right. I think that's right. Uh, and so, and so really what, but, but it's hard to believe that if our view of what the gospel is, is as narrow as justification by faith alone or penal substitutionary atonement or some kind of combination of the two and nothing else. Right. Um, and so, and so I, I think, you know, to, to this, this gives body in, in my reading and thinking to, uh, what, what is fidelity? What, what does, what is faith, right? So instead of having to kind of, um, keep adding words, adding adjectives to faith, well, faith is not just this, it's this, it's this, it's the, you know, it involves trust it involves right. this, um, uh, allegiance as a kind of posture of responsibility to the King, uh, loyalty to the King. Um, transfer of, of uh, citizenship really, really, I think is helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think one of the other things that this helps, helps me to think through is uh, this offers a more compelling case for uh, the, the church corporate um, that, that my faith is not just about what God has done for me individually, but it's, it's, I'm, professing allegiance and professing loyalty to the king who by definition has a a, a kingdom people by definition has a a polis um a people and so my allegiance to the king necessitates my participation in the kingdom people uh where where i think i think without without this framework you still see it in the scriptures. You still see I'm, I'm called to be a part of the church. Uh, but it, at least in my own mind, it, it's a little bit looser and, and less connected, uh, into, okay, well, well, of course I'm connected to the people, um, because I, I've been brought into the kingdom. So. Yeah, that's great. Um, I, I think that it, it's uh, not surprising to me that you, uh, as you're concerned with Bonhoeffer, right, would be concerned with cheap grace and with the cost of discipleship and measuring those things accordingly. Right. It sounds like, it sounds like you are. That's so. right. That's right. And, and in fact, so, so and, and I'm curious about this. Maybe you could speak to why you think, it, you know, you mentioned um, it's clear why some people can get, get skittish and nervous when, in these conversations. But what I found to be interesting is that some of the very people that are, that are, um, uh, like, let's use John MacArthur. I, I mean, you know, center of the lordship salvation kind of controversy when I was growing up, um, which I was not an insider. I'm just, I, you know, I, I didn't grow up. I grew up Roman Catholic and then went all over the place. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, someone who's so strong on to become a Christian doesn't just mean you agree with some kind of statement of who, you know, Jesus died for my sins, but actually means he becomes Lord of my life. And yet there's such a, uh, um, a guarding against the gospel includes anything else other than just, uh, justification by faith alone through the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. Why do you think that is? Why is that? Why, why for folks maybe in, uh, in opposition to your project, um, who, who would say Christ is King and that's important. What, why is it difficult for them to see these, you know, these things align the gospel and the kingship of Christ? I think most of them would would see them as aligning, um, but they would tend. To, they, there's been a tendency to move 
Jesus's kingship or lordship outside the gospel and make that an extraneous extra fact out here. Mm-hmm. Sort of like the Trinity. Like they, they, all these people are going to affirm the Trinity too. They're going to affirm Jesus is the king. Um, but that, that that's not actually saving has tended to be the claim. Um, that what saves is your trust in Jesus as, um, as the savior. And they might add the Lord, but, but that doesn't actually entail you needing to be obedient. Um, right. Other than, other than, of course, that, that um, if indeed you are saved, um, then you will produce the fruit of the Spirit. And so that there, there's a cause and effect sort of model for thinking about how it is that our faith um, interfaces with our works. It's a, it's a purely kind of cause and effect. Like, first, you have to have faith, and that's like a wholly intact thing on the one hand. And then on the other hand, you um, then once that's intact, you can you can and will and must produce good works if you're one of if you're really you know saved or really one of the elect or however that's framed. Um, quite honestly, some of what's driving that is probably a a sense that God alone can act for our salvation, um, and that some of that um, like that any kind of human contribution is an affront to God. So I would say that this, the technical term for that would be a monergism mm-hmm. might be driving some of this, right? That like God, like it, because we're totally depraved, right? Like God must act to regenerate us before we can make a decision for him. So like we can't be allegiant to him apart from God's action on our behalf. And so like God has to drive the engine 100% of the way or else we get into a synergistic situation. Um, so like a, a real fear of synergism I think, and a desire to kind of move in a monergistic frame, I think is really, if you want to get right down to it, that's probably what's driving the engine here. That's interesting. See, I wouldn't have personally, I wouldn't have seen one as necessarily following the other, right? So if God, if, if I believe that faith, uh, that I'm saved by grace alone through faith alone, uh, by Christ alone, and, and there, there's a necessary regeneration that comes by the Spirit uh, in other words, let's say I'm a good Calvinist. I'm a good Reformed guy. Uh, why would why would that regenerate regenerative work of the Spirit not then also produce an immediate allegiance? Like I, I don't know that I'm like an immediate embodied action. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, yeah, the answer would, is well. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think they would argue that it does. Right, that the Spirit, um, the Spirit. It, it's that's that's where my thesis would not be incompatible with a Calvinistic vision. Right, but obviously the Spirit like is the energizing force that would drive our, uh, our loyalty or our works. Um, so the question would be, of course, like initial engagement, like whether like our initial like allegiance is something that has to be like 100% accomplished by God and the spirit or whether we have any human contribution to that at all. Right. That would be the bigger point of tension. But I think it's also, of course, like some of the tensions have to do with corporate versus individual election. That would be yeah. kind of behind the scenes point of tension here, yep. right? Where um, there would be, um, like, you know, um, a, a Calvinistic vision might would want to center on individual election and that being like um, God moving you through a process, right? Like individually, you specifically need to be moved through a saving process. And that's all God's work. Um, where other kinds of articulations, Anglican and, you know, um, you know, various other non-Calvinistic uh, understandings uh, would would tend to for, sort of front like God's doing something for his whole people. Right. And that like it's what God has done for his whole people and that you then interface through what God has done by interfacing with his people. So if you want to be saved, um, guess what you need to do? You need to join the saved body, right? You need to enter into the church, which is 
um, as you do so, you'll have your share of the spirit because the spirit is present in his people. Mm -hmm. So you need, if you want the spirit in you, it's not so much that you need to be moved through an individualistic process by God. It's that you need to, um, as, as God is at work with you and alongside of you, you need to um, give your allegiance to Jesus. And as you do so, right, you tap into the corporate body. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder if that is driving some of it as well. Um, let's let's let me ask you this: uh, What do you hope the conversation? You talked about a paradigmatic shift uh, as far as your, you know, really your 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 big dream hope of uh, gospel allegiance in your work here. What what do you hope the conversation about the gospel looks like in say five years? Um, well, my greatest hope would be just to would be to see a network of churches that really fly that flag, right? Saying that, like, what is our church about? Our church is about Jesus is the King, and that what it means to be a Christian is to acknowledge that kingship through expressions of loyalty or allegiance. That's my greatest hope mm. would be to see churches that like identify themselves in that way as however we want to frame that as gospel allegiance churches, as King Jesus churches, as um, <laughs> allegiance to the king church i have no idea how, <laughs> how we talk about that but um but to see a network of churches not a denomination per se but ones that um you know are kind of an affiliation um so there are some groups that are doing that like um like renew network which um actually was a, a group that um kind of late in the game in the writing of of gospel allegiance came alongside me and they wanted to partner um, by um, agreeing to promote their books at their conferences and things like that. And so they're a, book, they're a group that's a very involved in um, a King Jesus sort of framework. Um, and so we're seeing that. I hope that other networks emerge too or begin to more clearly fly that flag. Good, good. And we'll, we'll post a link to that to Renew Network in our, sh in our show notes. Uh, what about in the next five weeks? So that's five years. But what about like right now, you know, there's been a little little bit of a back and forth uh, between, I think, you and Dr. McKnight and Greg Gilbert and right. so, some other folks. So, so what would you like maybe in the next just five weeks for things to look like? Well, I, I don't know that the conversation seems to have, have petered out a little bit in terms of um, that back and forth. Um, I'm sure that um, both Scott and I will continue to do popularizing work and Gilbert as well. We may lock horns again in the future. Um, that whole flap was really, I think, over from at least my vantage point, um, you know, Greg Gilbert and his T4G um, conversation or his sermon, I guess. Um, I, I think he misrepresented Scott and I's teaching. And so we we had um, uh, an opportunity to respond to that. And so we took that opportunity and used it really like not not so much as we were that worried that our names would be slandered. Although that's always a concern. You don't like to be misrepresented. Um, but that um, there's, I think, been some problematic understandings in terms of the gospel and its emphases that have permeated T4G. And we wanted to um, take that opportunity to say, you, you haven't really been fronting the right thing when you've said that the center of the gospel is justification by faith. Scripture never says that. Um, so you've put something at the center that's actually not at the center scripturally. Like the center of the gospel, scripturally speaking, there really isn't a center, uh, we would argue, and that the climax is that Jesus has become the king, which is a kind of different idea. So uh, I hope that, that we continue to see um, people jumping on board with this um, King Jesus um, kind of climactic energy kind of vision, um, as I think that justification by faith is not part of the gospel. And it's on the one hand, like justification is a benefit of the gospel, like that's applied by the Holy Spirit. It's not intrinsic to the gospel. 
Um, at least that's what I would argue. And that's what Gilbert was arguing against, would mm. be that he would see it as intrinsic to the gospel. And I would say we have no evidence that it would be understood such as the benefit of the gospel, which is quite different. Um, and that then on the other hand, faith is our response to the gospel. So neither justification nor faith are actually part of the gospel. One, on the one hand, justification is a benefit. On the other hand, faith is is our response to the gospel. And we can understand faith maybe better as allegiance. So there's a lot going on there. Um, and I hope, I guess, just to see the, the positive energy continue um, as, uh, as people continue to explore these ideas. And hopefully, um, if they're not persuaded by my position, at least um, they, they come to engage it in a serious way. Good. So uh, highly recommend to our listeners to pick up a copy of Gospel Allegiance or Salvation by Allegiance Alone. I think that that's an excellent recommendation to at least engage with Dr. Bates's arguments and uh, and just work through it and 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 take it and and open up the scriptures and put them side by side and do some some critical reading there. And then who knows uh, who knows what might happen. Now let's switch gears here as we as we close our time together. We end with a kind of lightning round where we just pop off some questions. We ask for you to just quickly just fire back answers. Before we get into that, though, we do like to, to, to find some uh, kind of tips and tricks vocationally when we have guests on. And so um, we tell us more about your some of your vocational habits. Maybe in particular, let's start with reading. What are your reading habits? Well, I read a lot, but not as much as I would like as I have seven children. Uh, seven that, children. That did not limiting. come up on the back of the baseball card. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Seven children keeps me hopping. Um, and in this season of life, I have a lot of, you know, um, vocational duty to my family as um, the age span there is 15 uh, to two. So um, wow. I have a lot of uh, time just as family time. Um, you know, beyond that, I try to read books that I think are important in my field um, and ones that are, um, uh, you know, um, I think advancing the conversation. I have a podcast myself called On Script, and we, we actually host conversations around um, the best in recent biblical scholarship. So oftentimes my reading uh, is connected to um, hosting that podcast. Um, but beyond that, I read a lot of fiction too. Um, Sci-fi, um, novels. Uh, I, I try to supplement my theological reading by reading fiction. Wow, you got some fiction uh, recommendations? Yeah. Or just favorites? Well, uh, yeah, well, lots, of course, that I that I would um, what I would recommend. I'm reading right now an interesting um, sci-fi fantasy um, by Gene Wolfe. Um, I think it's called um, The New Sun Chronicles or something like that. It's a four-volume work, and I'm on the last volume right now. It's been thoughtful. I mean, it's not the best sci-fi or fantasy I've ever read, but it's 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 really quite good. Um, we do read alouds with our family. Ooh. So um, we often are reading um, books aloud. And right now we're reading Moon Over Manifest um, by Claire Vanderpaul. It's, it's pretty good. Um, yeah, it's not the best, again, of read alouds <laughs> we've done. Now, the, one of the best read alouds we've done as a family is the Green Ember series. Yeah. That was a lot of fun. Um, and uh, the Wing Feather Saga also um, um, by uh, the musical artist uh, Andrew Peterson. Not yeah. only is he an enormously talented, talented musician, it's kind of unfair. He's also a, a fantastic author. Um, so yeah, that'd be, that'd be a little bit of what I'm reading, right? In terms of uh, you know non-academic reading right now. That's excellent. We we in the Bonhoeffer House, one of our um, really kind of core values is to read broadly, especially to read fiction. That reading fiction for uh, we're training mostly mostly young men to be pastors, and uh, we just want them to read fiction, uh, form, form the formative, yeah, form the imagination. And so, but we we haven't done a lot of sci-fi fantasy. Well, 
Yeah, not in the house. Not in the house. I personally. You you have, do. Yes. That's right. We haven't required it yet, though. No. No. Well, so don't, don't miss the Lewis Space Trilogy, right? C.S. Lewis' Space Trilogy. Yes. Is fabulous. Yep. Yes, good. Now, uh, we haven't asked this to the past few guests, but it's uh, it's on my mind because right now there's a there's a raging debate within the Bonhoeffer House uh, uh, world of, of, I don't know, what, what do you call us? Within, within the house. There's a house debate. In-house. There's an in-house <laughs> debate. That's excellent. There's an in-house debate about... Um, the right way to underline and take notes in your books oh, when you're reading. I wasn't sure where and you were so, going. And um, so do you underline, do you take notes? If so, are, do you use a straight edge? I do not use a straight edge. I do underline with a mechanical pencil and I write extensively in my margins. That's if I'm reading like something serious, like for right. academic purposes. Yep. I'm not novels. I don't underline novels or anything. I just read those. Do you find when you underline, are you pretty neat underline or are you just all over the place? I am. No, pretty neat. So you don't need the straight edge? No, I don't need the straight edge. I just try to be, you know, if I go across and like go over my words, it's too bad. But I use a pencil so I can erase it if mm. I need to and start over. But I write very tiny marginal notes frequently in my books. And I'll on the top of the page, I'll often star things that are interesting to me. And I have a system. Like I star things that are interesting. I check things that are important. And I check plus things that are really important. Mm. And I cue things like if I'm wanting to ask the author a question, especially if I'm reading for on script, I'll like put a cue there and um, try to figure out, you know, that's my system. That's a great system. That's a great system. I'm so glad we followed up there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to use that. Okay. How about some writing habits? When do you write? Is it like you, you got seven kids, so uh, <laughs> is this just in your work hours? Are you up super early? When do, when do you write? Mostly in my work hours. I, um, you know, because I'm um, a tenured professor now, I, I have a little more control over my teaching schedule. Like I teach a heavy load. I teach a 4 4 but I'm, I've managed to block that. So I do all my teaching on Tuesdays and Thursdays, which are like just grueling teaching days really yeah. long. But that leaves me Monday, Wednesday, Friday, more free to, to write and do administrative or, you know, write letters or recommendations or, or do all the other things professors do. Great, great. Okay, let's get to the lightning round. If you, if you could write one book and it was guaranteed to sell, doesn't matter what topic it is, doesn't have to be a work of theology, any book, what would you write? Wow, I would have to just continue this work I've done on the gospel. I, I, I it's just so on my heart that this is of urgent, urgent concern of the church. Um, so, I mean, I, I have other theological books that I've put on the back burner. I've, I've had a book on Christology that's an academic book. It's a follow up to my more academic, you know, um, book, The Birth of the Trinity. It's on early Trinitarian theology. I have one that I, I'm working on called The Birth of Christology that I just haven't been able to get to because I think this stuff is so urgent. This mm. gospel material. Good, good. Okay, what is the book you've given most as a gift? Most as a gift? Um, I'd have to count numbers of copies. I'm not sure. Um, probably like back when I first really got interested in biblical studies, it was a lot A lot of the influence was Gordon Fee. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I gave away a few copies of his um, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth that he co-authored with Douglas Stewart. I've given away a few copies of, of uh, The Challenge of Jesus by N.T. Wright. But I'm not a great book giver, I guess. As I'm obviously, I've given away more copies of my own work than yeah. anything else. But that, that probably goes without saying. Is you, you know, you get you get gift copies to give, and yeah. Good, good. I'm not a great giver either, but they disappear <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. I don't lock my study. Yeah, you are. A, you're a great unintentional <laughs> giver. Yeah, I've had a few that I've loaned out to students that never came back. That um, yeah. To be fair, I I borrowed a book from a local pastor, Everett Kyer, about eight years ago. And I, it's still in my, I have got a little pile of books I'm, I'm meaning to give back to people and I haven't given it back yet. 
So Everett, that book's coming to you one day. (laughs) I see him all the time. I see him all the time too. All the time. I haven't used the book in eight years. That's what I was going to say was that's surprising. Like literally weekly. I see him during the semester. All right, Mike, (laughs) last the next one. All right. Dr. Bates. What is something under $100 that every writer should own? Uh, a good coffee mug. Ooh. Like a really good coffee mug. Like a travel mug? No, not a travel mug. It's, I, I'm traveling right now, so I have a travel mug I can display for you. Yep. Um, listeners probably can't see it. But no, I'm talking like one with a solid base that you can't really tip very easily. Like mm. you hit it with your elbow on accident and it just like your elbow bounces off of it and the coffee cup even moving Ooh. right that's the that's the kind you want it sounds like, like a I have coffee one, goblet a very specific <laughs> one i have that i got a long time ago it was by the brand timolino and it's like huge and nice it's like a vat timolino i'm gonna find that and put it in the show notes and buy it coffee vat it I've may s- not even exist anymore oh I don't no know. i, mean, I bought spilled- it like 10 years ago at least oh so. my gosh i've spilled coffee on books i've spilled coffee on my bible yeah. i need this unspillable Coffee vat. It was. Coffee it's vat. a great mug. I have two of them actually. I bought two of them because I bought one, and then a year later I bought another one because I wanted one for home and the office. Ooh. They're that good. It's great. That good. Great. Okay. Uh, so let me ask you this: What's the best book of theology for the average Joe or Jane? Um, I'll go with uh, M.T. Wright, uh, "How God Became King." Um, it's it's one of his more popular level books, um, and that one I think is particularly important among his popular level books. Excellent. How God became king. How about what is the worst advice you regularly hear given to young theologians? Well, um, I would say there's two worst pieces of advice that are like the polar opposites and are bad. One would be like all you need to do is like read the Bible and read the Bible and read the Bible and read the Bible. Um, obviously, we need to branch out beyond that a little bit uh, if we're going to have anything interesting to say. Um, the other would be that like you need to like systematically work through all the greats. Right. Like people are like, well, you really can't be a theologian until you've read everything that Augustine wrote and Calvin wrote and Art wrote and, you know, von Baldazar. And like, okay, guess what? Like you read those four and you're done with your life. <laughs> right? it's, it's not going to work. Right. Those are huge, huge, huge corpuses. So uh, I, I think that um, we, Every, I would say every single insight that I've ever had as a biblical scholar, and that's more my forte than as a theologian, would be usually through actually a deep engagement with the text rather than through like broad theological reading. Mm. Most always it's become like I've dug in deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into a passage or into language work and that I've had insights that have sprung from that, but then I have to kind of go back and look in light of the great tradition, like how does this echo and bounce around? Now, you need to know something of the great tradition in order to, to, to do that, but I think that the two extremes are folly, right? Like you don't want to just be a scripture alone person that has no idea of, uh, like of how the horizons of reception history shape the way you even see scripture, um, but, but on the other hand, don't think you need to read everything before you can have anything interesting to say. Mm. Excellent. Last question. How do you get unstuck on a project? Well, I wish you could tell me that right now. Um, <laughs> no, I, I have been kind of stuck a little bit uh, on, on my next writing project. But I would say for me, I'm a very linear writer. And um, I struggle whenever, like, I'm meaning by, by that, I mean, I like start, I write my introduction, I write my first chapter, I write the whole book in sequence in order, like without changing any of it. But then oftentimes I'll find that like I have a chapter that's like way too long. And I'm like, 
crud. Like, what do I do? Um, do I need to split this into two chapters? If I do, I got to move this there and this there. And then uh, I, I find myself like just spinning in circles sometimes within my own projects in that way. So sometimes taking a healthy break um, can help uh, you to just get clarity <laughs> over what you're doing. Um, I often all times will also just like, as I find things that are like no longer fit, I'll just cut and paste them and put them at the end of the word document. And I can kind of go back maybe and find a place for it later, or maybe not. Maybe it just gets a fall into the floor and I never use it. Or maybe it just goes into a file of things I've written that might find a place in some future book, you know? Um, so I, I, I guess that's the, the best tips I have for getting unstuck. But I think for me, it's mostly just never lose momentum. Like once you lose your momentum, you're just toast. Mm. So you got to keep going when you're writing, like keep going, keep going. Don't lose momentum. Excellent. 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 Thank you so much, Matt, for joining us. We want to thank Dr. Bates for uh, just this wide-ranging interview. Really appreciate it. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in here for episode 15 of The Hammer and Quill. Tune in next week as we interview our friend, Dr. Gary Yates, about his work as an Old Testament scholar and the upcoming class that he is teaching through the Bonhoeffer House and Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary here on site in Southwest Virginia. Please subscribe, review us on iTunes, throw some five-star reviews our way. Until next time. Peace. Peace. Peace, peace, peace.